Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We may not have an overall recession. We're having a rolling recession. The economy overall looks pretty strong, at least when it comes to jobs. The financial stories that shape our world. Three major regional bank failures sent shockwaves through the banking system. We're all trying to figure out what to make of generative AI. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Welcome now, Dr. Paul Krugman. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Deborah Lair of the Paulson Institute. Glenn Hubbard of the Columbia Business School. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. A whole lot of stress in Moscow, in the banking sector, at what's left of Credit Suisse, and even in a surprisingly resilient economy. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, Michael Che of Blackstone on where the economy is headed and what it means for his business. Our business model is really made for times like this. Former FDIC chair Sheila Baer on what we learned from the Fed's stress tests. I don't think we should take a lot of comfort from it. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. And Darren Walker of the Ford Foundation on what the Supreme Court's ruling on affirmative action means for us all. The playing field uh, tilts towards those who are already advantaged. Stress, measuring it and dealing with it was the order of the day this week in Global Wall Street. It all started in Moscow with Vladimir Putin backing down in the face of a mutiny. Dear friends, today I address once again all Russian citizens. I thank you for your endurance, solidarity and patriotism. At UBS in Switzerland, it wasn't so much an attempted mutiny as it was cleaning house, with reports that more than half of the Credit Suisse team it inherited will be shown the door. UBS is preparing to cut more than half of the Credit Suisse workforce um, that it uh, bought. Back in the United States, the Supreme Court raised the stress 
next level for colleges and universities trying to make sure they have diverse student bodies. This essentially ends affirmative action as we know it. U.S. banks got a report card this week on their ability to withstand stress in the aftermath of the Silicon Valley bank failure. All in all, all the banks had passed pretty clean read. But for those waiting for Fed rate cuts, the stress level, if anything, went up as housing numbers came in surprisingly strong and Chair Powell over at Sintra, Portugal, wouldn't rule out consecutive rate hikes yet to come. But I wouldn't take, you know, moving at consecutive meetings off the table at all. While his counterpart at ECB, Christine Lagarde, said she's not even considering a rate pause at this point. If our baseline uh, stands, then we also know that uh, we will very likely hike again. But for all the stress this week, the markets pretty much took it in stride. The S&P 500 was up another 2.35%, ending the week at 44.50. And that is way above the median call of our Bloomberg elves, who are saying by the end of the year it should hit 4,100. The Nasdaq wasn't too far behind, up about 2.2% for the week, while the yield on the 10-year was up nine basis points, finishing the week at 3.83. To take us through what was driving the markets this week, we welcome back Rebecca Patterson, who earlier served as Chief Market Strategist at Bridge. Rebecca, always great to have you here. Thank you for being here. So as you look at all that happened, a lot happened this week, actually. Yeah. What do you think was driving the markets? Because the, the stock market sure liked whatever they saw. Well, I think there's still a sense out there that there's a reasonable probability of a soft landing, that the Fed maybe have to hike one or two more times max, but that's largely discounted now, and that the everything is going to line up perfectly, a moderation in growth, but not too much, and a, a quick moderation in inflation that it would allow the Fed to ease significantly next year. Uh, I think that hope, and you get some data that supports it, some that doesn't, is what's really leading the stocks higher, largely. Obviously, there's structural issues with AI and how that could help tech stocks in particular and ancillary businesses through new sources of revenue. But I think the macro picture is really these hopes for a soft landing, which I still personally think are premature. So uh, we're about halfway through the year now, exactly halfway through yeah. the year. Uh, did you expect that's what, this is where we'd be when January one came around? You know, the beginning of the year, we had the China reopening, yeah. and everyone was very excited about that. It happened faster. It was sort of a big bang reopening. I, I, I have been a little surprised with the degree of, of how quickly it's moderated. You know, the fact that we have youth unemployment in China at over 20%. Manufacturing in China is contracting out right now. Services is positive, but just barely. So China is going to need to do more stimulus. Um, and we have the Politburo meeting coming up in July. I think if they do something, it'll be then. But if we don't see something bigger than the incremental steps they've taken so far, and something really aimed at the consumer, building consumer confidence, getting companies to bring people back to work, I think that one keeps moderating. I think the other thing that surprised me so far this year um, was the strength in tech. I mean, I think everyone's been surprised by the strength in tech. You've still had higher yields this year. You've still had Fed hikes. And normally those longer duration assets are going to be more sensitive to that. But I think what's driven it regardless has been the very strong underlying consumer because at the end of the day, there's still a big con consumer and cyclical component to tech stocks. But in addition, again, these structural 
cultural hopes around AI and what that's going to bring. As you say, China right now seems to be disappointing, if anything, a bit. We'll see how it plays out the rest of the year. What's the knock-on effect of that, for example, in the United States? I mean, China has traditionally been the source of a lot of growth globally. Yep. Uh, it looks like it's not going to be play that same role. What does that mean for the United States economy? Well, it's, it's so interesting. I think the U.S. could actually be a small net beneficiary when it comes to the stock market. So, again, think back to November, December, January, when we had the speculation and then actual reopening in China. You saw economies that are more sensitive to China, that have stronger trade relationships, business relationships, benefit even more than the U.S. did. So Germany, for example, 50% of their GDP is exports. China's a huge trade partner. Italy, a lot of the emerging Asian economies, commodity prices. So all the capital was going to these uh, more cheaply valued, attractively valued stocks overseas that would benefit from China. Now with China sputtering and people saying, where do I want to allocate for the second half of the year, even though certain parts of the U.S. equity market could be seen very pricey, especially some of those tech names, the U.S. economy still looks more resilient than a lot of places overseas. So one thing that could be a surprise for the second half of the year is that the U.S. outperforms again. Um, as, you know, it's amazing to say that with tech stocks valued where they are today, and I think that has to slow at some point soon, especially with the Fed continuing to raise rates. But if the U.S. is the best house on the block, and I think it will be in the second half of the year most likely, that might keep capital coming in here, which means a stronger dollar. Um, and so certain U.S. stocks will benefit more than others. Uh, we all pay so much attention to the central banks, not just the Fed, but the central banks. We heard from them this week at Sintra over in Portugal. And certainly we heard a message from Jay Powell, from the Federal Reserve, from Christine Lagarde, and even from Mr. Bailey, Bank of England. If anything indicated, we're going to have higher for longer. How does that affect the market? You know, I think that's really going to be uh, end of the year and early next year story. So again, right now the market is pricing in higher for longer for this year, especially compared to January. January, we're still thinking we could get rate cuts during this year. That's largely been removed, but we're still looking at a market discounting significant easing next year. Now, Jay Powell himself has said that for inflation to get back to 2%, their target, it's probably not happening until 2025. So are they actually going to be easing a year ahead of that if inflation's above target? Maybe if there's a huge crisis or if the jobless claims and the payroll numbers deteriorate very materially, but if they don't, it's hard for me to see that easing coming. So I think that is going to be a headwind for equities in the U.S. and globally, probably as we get towards later in the year and the Fed is signaling that we're not there yet. As a recovering lawyer, I have to ask one quick one about the Supreme Court. Uh, we had several controversial decisions come down. Do they have any economic effect, do you think? You know, the one decision that we got about the student loan forgiveness Forgiveness, um, that, that that's not going to go forward. You know, the decision itself is not as economically important, but there is a, a relative angle to this, which is that um, student loans have been forbeared, right? They haven't had to pay them since March 2020, and that ends this fall. The Bureau of Economic Analysis is saying 38 billion annual rate of disposable income they had from not paying those loans. That goes away. So I think when we think about what could hurt 
GDP at the end of the year, Q4, Q1, this could be a material hit for the consumer. Interesting. I'm not sure we'd figure that out yet. Thank you so much, Rebecca. It's really great to have you with us. That's Rebecca Patterson, formerly with Bridgewater. Coming up, we go over the results of the first bank stress test since all those bank failures back in March with former FDIC chair Sheila Baer. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, the Federal Reserve released the results of their stress test, and all 23 banks passed, I would say, with flying colors. To take us through what we learned, and maybe as important what we may not have learned from these tests, we welcome now Sheila Baer. She, of course, served as the chair of the FDIC. So, Sheila, thanks so much for being back with us. What did these stress tests tell us about the state of the banking industry? Well, um, they told us that in uh, that, that in a severe stress scenario, was, as the Fed has defined it, uh, they would survive quite well and still have plenty of capital to keep lending. But I think there were a lot of problems with the scenario and the assumptions uh, that underpinned the stress test. So I, I don't think we should take a lot of comfort from it. There are a lot of there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And to its credit, the Fed acknowledged that there are a lot of different potential risks out there that may not be reflected. Um, so I, I, I do think uh, we should not take a lot of <laughs> a lot of comfort in this. Well, um, you know, the, the big the, the big issue, obviously, is they don't stress high interest rates. Uh, that is the issue confronting the banking banking industry right now. And uh, ironically, if you assume, as their stress test does, that rates go back to zero in a severe recession, that actually helps banks that have a lot of unrealized losses <laughs> in their uh, in their on their books because when you take rates back to zero those low yielding assets uh, regain value quickly so in a way they're rewarding banks for not managing their interest rate risk very well and uh, that's a big problem um, the other issue is is that again related to interest rates is what happens if we have a protracted period where the yield curve is inverted 
meaning that short-term borrowing rates are higher than long-term rates, which is a situation we've had for a while now, that leads you into a situation which we're already seeing where banks' cost of funding, what they have to pay on deposits or borrowing, will exceed what they can get on their loans. And that's going to be a real challenge for banks. And those are the kinds of issues the Fed really needs to be thinking about and, and putting banks through, not this kind of artificial assumption that if we have a recession, rates go back to zero and we start the party all over again <laughs> and their assets are inflated and they don't have to pay anything on the deposits anymore. That's just not realistic. Uh, Sheila, your reference to interest rate risk takes me back to one of the reasons why we were particularly eager to see these results in the wake of the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and other banks that yeah. were interest rate risks. Are there things yeah. that could be done with the stress test that would have kicked out that problem? Or is it not yes. a stress test or capital issue at all? It is. So it, I, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's realistic, to be honest with you. It's, it's not the kind of scenario we should be worried about. And so, yes, they should be uh, assuming that interest rates stay high, inflation stays high, interest rates have to stay high. We still have, uh, you know, we, don't, we have a hard landing. We don't have a soft landing and that the yield curve remains inverted for some period of time. That's the worst case nightmare scenario that we need to you know, prepare for. I hope it doesn't happen, but it certainly could. And I think you know, keeping interest rates high, even if we have an economic slowdown or recession, I think is a much more likely than this idea that the Fed's just gonna go back to zero again. That's completely inconsistent with the Fed itself has been saying about you know, keeping rates high until inflation is, is, is defeated. So uh, that, that's really what they need to be working back. And, and yeah, we have we have real life examples with these recent uh, regional bank failures. It's exactly what took them down. They're unrealized. They had deposit runs. They had a lot of underwater securities, which they had to start selling to meet deposit redemptions that caused losses. That's what brought them down. So you're, you're seeing that in real life right now. And these were very poorly managed banks. I think most banks are managing these risks well. But this is the scenario that the Fed needs to take the banking system through. How does liquidity figure in? Because one of the issues, obviously, yeah. on a lot of these banks that failed is they just didn't have the liquidity, so they had to sell the securities, yeah. Yeah. as you pointed yeah. out. Yeah. Does liquidity right. factor into the stress test, should it? It does not, really. There are separate tests on liquidity. They're not public. But they probably should be public. And the liquidity risk needs to be integrated into the capital stress testing because you cannot separate these out. A bank that is perceived to be weak by the market will likely have deposit runs or you know, accelerated deposit withdrawals. That means that they might have to sell securities they weren't planning on selling, the so-called hold-to-maturity securities, which will have a big impact on capital. So these need to be integrated together. You can't just have a, a clean separation. And again, that's, that's, that's part of the broader interest rate scenarios, liquidity risk as they impact capital that the Fed should be running these banks through. We're talking about the banking sector, the regulated banking sector right, right now. There's right. a lot of right. uh, transactions being done outside of that, as you know so well. And if anything, has, that has been growing dramatically. Ironically, perhaps, in part because of the difficulties the banks are having. So they're getting out of some of the business that private credit is stepping into. Is there an effective right. way to take into account the possible systemic risk from the non-bank banks? So it's a huge issue because in my experience, you know, we had a non-bank lending during the great financial crisis. They were doing the lion's share of the mortgage lending, right? The big banks were doing the securitizations that fed the beast, but they were doing the, the lion's share and they, they still do, frankly. But those sources of credit dry up very quickly. 
if you get into in, into distressed market situations, the banks that have stable deposits are the ones that keep lending. So if you keep squeezing the banks, and if we overreact, especially with the smaller banks, the regional and community banks, to recent failures, you're going to have you're going to even push even more of that into the private sector. You're going to constrain their ability, the non-bank sector. You're going to constrain their ability to lend, and that's going to make the system even more fragile. There's also not a lot of transparency between the intersection of the regulated banks and the non-bank sector. Again, this was a huge problem during the great financial crisis. Most of the mortgage lending was at the non-banks, but it certainly flowed back into the banks when troubles emerged. You referred to regional banks and also community banks and their role overall in the ecosystem. Uh, that's certainly come to the forefront. Uh, how concerned should we be about the role of the community banks, the regional banks, versus the big money center banks? And is there something right. we could do to really ensure their strength? Because they do provide a lot of the uh, lending and the credit to some of the smaller businesses across the country. They do. And, and those are the engines of, of job growth. So, yes, I've been saying for some time now we need to at least have a temporary guarantee for transaction deposit accounts that these smaller banks have with their business customers and other institutions like you know local governments, nonprofits. These are accounts that are used by their customers to pay bills, to make payroll, you know, to bring revenues in, pay expenses. They're operational. They don't move easily. And but but they're they're almost always above the insured deposit limits because you got a lot of money flowing in and out to 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 pay expenses, uh, payroll and other bills. So we provided a temporary guarantee for them during the great financial crisis. We were seeing deposit instability then with the smaller banks. The, those deposits were migrating to the so-called too big to fail banks. You want to stop that. We've had enough consolidation already. So providing reinstituting at least on a temporary basis this guarantee again. I think would be hugely stabilizing to those those uh, regional and community banks. Unfortunately, in Dodd Frank, for whatever reason, it took the authority away from the FDIC using what's called a systemic risk exception to, which is an extraordinary procedure, to it, you, it, to reinstate that. Now there's a fast track approval process in the Hill. It needs to be required. The president has to ask for it. Uh, the president, for whatever reason, has not asked for it. But I do think there's insufficient focus on stabilizing liquidity for these community and regional banks. The more they have to, you know, pay really high rates on deposits or borrow from the federal home loan bank, which is really expensive borrowing, the more that is going to distress them and constrain their ability to lend. We need to stabilize those accounts, especially transaction accounts, uh, with, with a much higher, if not unlimited guarantee, at least on a temporary basis. Sheila, this is very helpful. Thank you so much for joining us once again. That's Sheila Bear. She is the former chair of the FDIC. Coming up, the world of private equity today from the perspective of one of the biggest players. We talk with Blackstone CFO Michael Che. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. 
We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Investors these days face a number of real uncertainties about where the economy is going, as well as what the Fed is likely to do in response to that. One of the ways to look at what those uncertainties really tell us and what we should do about it is through the lens of alternative investing. And we welcome now somebody who is at one of the biggest, most successful alternative investment houses that there is. It is Blackstone. He's the chief financial officer there, and he is Michael Che. So, Michael, welcome to Wall Street. Great to have you. David, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's start with a macro here, if we could. Uh, what is the Blackstone view, the operating thesis right now, about where we are in the economy and where it's headed, on inflation, on uh, wh- whether we're going to have a big downturn or not? Sure. Well, on the macro, which obviously affects everything, um, we do benefit from having the lens of a really big portfolio of investments. So we have stakes in over 200 companies that together have over 200 billion of revenues in aggregate. We have a real estate portfolio with over 12,000 individual assets. We have a very big private credit portfolio. So that's a very sort of rich sample. Um, And I'd start with the good news. So uh, the good news first, I think, is um, we pretty definitively see inflation trending down. You know, if you look uh, at the inflation prints, the standard metrics, uh, and you adjust for shelter, which sort of lagged on the way up and is now lagging on the way down. If you look, for example, at core CPI, a very important metric, X shelter, that's running in the mid threes. And if you look at uh, CPI by itself, X shelter, it actually hit about 2% last month. Um, So we definitely see the direction of travel being down. Uh, Other good news is the performance of the, and resilience of the economy and of many companies uh, to date. Uh, so in our own portfolio, we talked about this publicly in the first quarter, um, our private equity uh, portfolio companies grew with double-digit revenues in the first quarter uh, with stable, resilient margins. Uh, we see in our portfolio you know, clear signs that costs have peaked in the last few quarters, including with respect to wages, very importantly. So there's some good news on both those fronts. Now against that, of course, is the challenge of the cost of capital and the availability of capital. And there, I think you see the confluence of three really big things. First, obviously, the escalation in short rates over the last 14 months or so, 500 basis points. Um, I think the Fed has um, uh, basically achieved its goal of achieving positive real rates for the first time in this country in many years. Uh, And we're going to take the Fed at its word and uh, plan for higher for longer short rates. Second, quantitative tightening. You know, as you and I know, I think a few years ago, we sort of couldn't stop talking about QT, and now I think we don't talk about it enough. 
And so pre-COVID, the Fed balance sheet, as you know, was $4 trillion or so. It more than doubled in the subsequent couple of years. Um, and now they're embarking on a, a, on a balance sheet reduction program where they're basically through runoff of assets, shrinking that balance sheet by about a trillion you know, annual run rate a year. So that's going to have significant effects over time. And we already see some of the impact in certain markets and how they're behaving like agency mortgages. And then third, as a result of the banking challenges, especially the regional banking challenges of uh, earlier in this year, um, we do think you'll see credit contraction from that over time. So those are three big forces. And I think the result of all that is the Fed is basically going to deliver what it intended, which is a slowdown in the economy. Uh, and I think, you know, you should expect to see deceleration in the economy, you know, in the coming months. So take all that together, uh, a complex and nuanced view, strengthen the economy, at the same time, reduction in liquidity, some uncertainty. What does that mean for deal making? I think we're seeing the uh, overall M&A cycle playing out probably as we more or less expected even a year ago, which is you had this really big rate shock, again, the 500, zero to 500 basically in 14 or 15 months. And during that time period, M&A activity essentially froze. We are now seeing uh, on the ground some thawing of, of that, uh, that freeze. Um, and I think the reasons for that, you know, having seen these cycles before, are you know, that seller expectations need to be recalibrated and that takes time. Uh, and then in this particular circumstance, um, I think market participants are now you know, seeing that we're nearing the end of this dramatic uh, rate increase cycle uh, and therefore feeling like there's a little less uncertainty, a little more certainty, uh, and are readier to transact. And so if you look at our own business, you know, just in this month of June, we've been busy people. Uh, and so in the last couple of weeks, you know, we announced things like a $2 billion investment uh, in one of the country's fastest growing utilities, uh, an almost billion dollar additional investment in the country's largest private developer of renewables, uh, in the logistics area, real estate, which we're big fans of. Uh, we, we've been selling and buying. We announced the sale of a, over $3 billion of logistic assets to a public company earlier this week. And we also um, uh, acquired three different portfolios of logistics assets in both the U.S. and Europe. So um, I think those probably constitute uh, green shoots or potential green shoots. I think you'll be hearing that that term will be more in fashion this summer, I think, among Wall Street types. Um, but really for us, in terms of our business, our business model is really made for times like this um, at its core. You know, we're all about long-term, locked-up, committed capital uh, through fund structures. And what that allows us to be is patient, and it allows us, obviously, to have capital at a time when capital is short. Uh, and indeed, we have nearly $200 billion of dry powder to invest opportunistically in the coming time period. And our history has shown that those couple of years coming out of a cycle are some of the best times to invest. So we're excited about what the future will bring. As you see that thaw, and if I can draw the analogy, the green shoots coming up through the ice, more or less, is the nature of the deals changing? We saw a piece in the Wall Street Journal this week, actually Blackstone was mentioning it, that suggested private equity is doing more smaller deals, maybe because of the uncertainty, the price of financing, even regulatory overhang. Are you, are you seeing smaller deals than you did before? I think, well, we, we have our own particular perspective. We, scale is one of our big advantages. Uh, in our private equity, it allows us to do things others can't do. In our private equity business, you know, we've successfully in the last couple of years um, been able to engineer a couple of really large deals, a partnership with Emerson um, in the climate technologies area. Copeland is the name of the business. Recently, a $5 billion take private of a, a business called Cvent. Um, so we do think that's one of our edges. And so you can't paint with a broad brush that the deals are getting smaller. 
I do think that the development of the direct lending market, which there's been a lot of uh, focus on in the private credit area, you know, has in, in this cycle and, and I think secularly um, allows for uh, deal making to continue, including at relative scale in a way that maybe five, ten years ago was less, uh, less, less doable. As you look at the, the uh, landscape out there, where are the investment opportunities and how dependent are they on assumptions that were done or close to done with the hiking of the rates? Sure. Well, I, it's a, a multifaceted answer, and we have a broad business, and so we have sort of a balanced attack and aren't relying on one single strategy. But I think for sure on the, on the credit side, lending money right now in this environment is a very compelling thing to do with very good risk reward, probably some of the best risk reward we've seen in a long time in the credit area. So in things like direct lending, you, know, you can generate double-digit returns given where base rates are and spreads. Uh, for being in the very senior most part of the capital structure with a lot of equity beneath you. So that is very attractive in other forms of private credit, whether it's asset-backed credit uh, or real estate credit. Um, similarly, it's a very good time to invest from a risk-reward standpoint. So that's one big theme. And then on the equity side, a little bit apropos what I talked about when I went through the deals we're doing, um, you know, I'd say we're still uh, uh, applying some of our same key themes around sort of the sectors and areas we want to invest in. But now we think we'll do it in a more interesting environment, uh, maybe a somewhat more dislocated environment to find value. So um, that's really how we're approaching it. You mentioned real estate. Obviously, Blackstone has a very substantial presence in real estate. It's been a lot in the news. There's a lot of report of the challenges for commercial real estate. What is your perspective on that? Uh, are we headed toward a real substantial downturn in real estate? Well, it's interesting. Um, I think you know when you see the acronym CRE in a mm -hmm. newspaper article, you can be sure it's probably going to portray the sector uh, and paint it with a broad brush. The reality is uh, there's real bifurcation in terms of the dynamics in real estate as an industry. It's a big industry. Um, you, you have one sector, traditional office, uh, especially in the U.S., that really does have fundamental challenges and vacancy levels of 20% plus and so forth. That happens to be a very small portion of our portfolio, less than 2% of our global real estate equity portfolio. And then you have a number of sectors where, fortunately, we're concentrated through, I think, some good sector selection decisions, where the fundamentals are really quite good. Vacancies in many of those uh, sectors are at 2 to 5%, which is almost at or just above the frictional level of vacancy. It really matters where you invest. Uh, and the portfolio construction, I think, our firm has created in real estate over the last decade are really uh, you know, some, of our, some of our finest work as a firm. Michael, thank you so much for being on Wall Street. It was really great to have you here. That's Michael Che. He's the Chief Financial Officer of Blackstone. Coming up, the Supreme Court rocks the nation once again with its decision on affirmative action. We'll talk with the head of the Ford Foundation, Darren Walker, on what it could mean for all of us. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston. From Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. The Supreme Court rocks the nation once again with its decision on affirmative action. And to take us through what exactly the Supreme Court's ruling this week might mean for talent in this country, welcome now Darren Walker. He is the head of the Ford Foundation. Darren, thank you so much for being back with us. You've written an op-ed piece in the New York Times, a very profound one, uh, questioning some of the fundamentals of the Supreme Court's decision. And let me ask you, because you go through your personal experience and how that informs your view on this, what do you think that the Chief Justice, Roberts, and the other five members of the what do you think they don't understand about America today? 
Well, I think what they have not taken into account is the reality that our great history in this country also has some regrettable dimensions. The racism that has regrettably been a part of our country's history, the vestiges of that remain with us. We are still a highly segregated society in our educational system, our workplaces, uh, our uh, criminal justice system, and other systems in this country. And to simply say, uh, in order to stop discriminating, we must stop discriminating, creates a false moral equivalency between those who historically sought to keep the Jim Crow hierarchy, the racial hierarchy that characterized this country for most of our history. Those people uh, are uh, doing the same thing uh, as uh, those of us who have sought to bring about more justice and redress the history, the vestiges of racism that unfortunately remain with us today. Have we made real progress with what is called by some affirmative action? I mean, we can go back. It's been around for a long time now. Go back to the Bakke decision in 1978. That's a long time ago now. Did having affirmative action help us make progress in the direction we should be making progress? Well, David, I would not be here with you today were it not for affirmative action. Uh, there is no doubt that an entire generation of African-Americans and Latinos in this country have been propelled forward in part because of affirmative action. I'm a proud affirmative action baby. I benefited from living in a country that believed in my potential. And even though I was a poor kid living in a rural community, America cheered me on. This country wanted me to win and succeed. And that manifest in the ways in which my public education, the Pell Grants, uh, graduating from college without any debt, all of this made it possible for me to get on the mobility escalator and ride it as far as I could and my talent would bring me. But there had to be a sense of understanding of racial consciousness. And what the Supreme Court and others seem to be saying is that it is time for us to move beyond having any consciousness of race. We're not saying, I don't profess to believe that race has to be the deciding factor, but to say that it is unconstitutional to have any consciousness of race and the legacy of racism that remains with us, I think is not good for our democracy. The multiracial, multicultural uh, democracy, this great experiment called America, uh, won't work if we uh, simply wash away and erase the history, the reality today uh, of our country's uh, racism uh, and the bias that unfortunately remains. Darren, thank you so much for being on Wall Street Week. That is Darren Walker. He is the president of the Ford Foundation. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Wall Street Week. If you missed any part of today's program, you can listen on demand with our Wall Street Week podcast. Find that on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. I'm David Weston. Stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now.
The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.